Hello and welcome to, sorry. Hello, I'm Peter Whittle. Welcome to this edition of Counterculture. Now, here we are at the beginning of a new decade. So on this programme, we're going to be looking forward to seeing what we would be discussing in the year 2030. What would Britain look like at the end of this decade? To do this, we're going to be looking at a few particular areas. That is, what Britain will look like constitutionally. Monarchy, House of Lords, the very makeup, if you like, of the United Kingdom as it now is. We're also going to be looking at immigration and the effect it's going to have on our population. Then at the same time, we're going to be asking questions such as, where will the main threats to our society be coming from? How secure will we be? And indeed, what will the state be of free speech? Will we be able to say anything that we believe in the year 2030? Now, to discuss this, I've got four great guests with me. There's Emma Webb from Civitas, Benjamin Lochnane, who is a communications consultant specialising in migration, Richard Bingley, who is a security expert and founder of the UK NSA think tank, and the New Culture Forum's own Rafe Hadelman-Koo, who's also an historian and commentator. So, Rafe, I want to start with you because on the quiet, you're a bit of a royal commentator. And, you know, we started off with what seems to be a crisis for the monarchy in some way. Uh, looking for 10 years first, what kind of a monarchy do you think we will have? Well, I rather subscribe to King Farouk of Egypt's famous adage when he said that eventually there'll only be five kings left, the king of spades, clubs, diamonds, hearts and England. <laughs> we have a wonderful <laughs> ability in this country to evolve and adapt. And so whilst the British monarchy looks ancient, it's transformed itself uh, time and time again. The monarchy of today is very different to the monarchy of the 90s, which again was very different to the monarchy of the 50s. And that's why our monarchy has survived, whereas, for example, those in Germany, France and Russia have failed. And so whilst we're going through a blip right now, I wouldn't call this a full-blown crisis. If, if Prince William <laughs> had decided not to uh, fulfil his duties, we'd be in a full crisis. But as long as we can get through the next 20 years, a bit more work on the shoulders of the Princess Royal and uh, Prince, Prince Edward than perhaps they would have expected for the next little while until the children of, of, um, uh, of um, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge grow up. We'll see the monarchy continuing very much as they are. A streamlined monarchy, we won't have all of the monarchy that we see today in the form of the Gloucesters and the Kents and the Young Yorks, Beatrice and Eugenie. So it'll be really a monarchy that is streamlined, focusing very much on the heir and the direct line of succession. So it'll be, is it right to say it'll be more of a presidential monarchy in a way? There's this one figurehead as well, you know? There'll be the direct line, so you'll always have the Sovereign, the Prince of Wales, and the edge of the Prince of Wales. It'll be that Holy Trinity, if you want, the Big Three. If we can go from President to, you know, a World War II analogy of the Big Three, that's going to be the, the way the monarchy will always be seen from now on. I mean, do you think, I mean, do you think this current thing with uh, Meghan and Harry, has it sort of changed your attitude to the monarchy in some way? Uh, if anything, it's made me more sort of hard <laughs> in my in my support yeah. of um, of the Queen and the sort of main line of the royal family. I think um, what it's shown is that they're even within the royal family always being a sort of embodiment of the country as a whole. There is this cultural conflict between the sort of liberal individualism uh, and an almost corporatism of the Sussexes. Um, and corporatism. The, so what do you uh, mean? So um, their decision to try and transition to being financially independent and their mm. brand of the Royal Sussex brand, um, that in comparison to, you know, their, their wanting to sort of self-actualise and, and to, um, to be themselves and to be separate from the public eye and to sort of separate themselves from the sense of duty that is still very much um, epitomised by the Queen, obviously, first, but also in William and Kate um, and in Prince Charles. So I think in 2030, going back to um, the original question, yeah. that it's very likely by then that Prince Charles will be king, um, relatively likely given the Queen's current age. Um, and I think that the, the immediate royal line still very much embody those um, values of duty and immersing the self in the whole and the selflessness that's traditionally associated with the concept of nobility as opposed to um, what we're seeing from Meghan and Harry. I mean, the, the thing is, when you talk about things like concept of nobility and, and, I, exactly, and, and, and a sense of noblesse of liege and all of these things, I mean, does that, what does that mean to most young people now? I mean, 
But do you think do you think these things mean anything to people? Well, I mean, they're the ones who are going to be, you know, yeah. here in 2030. Well, you were right about noblesse oblige. Absolutely, that's I think what's missing here. Certainly with Meghan, I think she wanted to be a princess. She became a princess, and then well, she'd done it. She got absolutely. bored of it and moved on. And I think it's, it's is that what you think it is? Well, I think you know when you're not raised the sense that royalty is duty, and it's not just something you get to enjoy for a while and then you get bored of it and move on. But it, it's a lifetime commitment to a vocation which you're born into and you don't have a choice about. Um, and I think there's a separation between the two. There's the Disney princess idea and then there's actually, you know, being in service to your country. Um, and I think, you know, if you're not raised to that, you're not given that sense yes. of, you know, obligation, then you become disillusioned very quickly. And it's interesting because monarchy actually predates the nation state mm. and marriages were alliances between foreign powers. Mm. And if you want to look at history, I mean, British monarchy is often today seen as being a rather, uh, you know, ethnocentric British institution. It's always been very, very multinational. And um, you could argue that it's only been, with the exception of the Queen Mother, Queen Elizabeth the Queen Mother, who's Scottish, um, it's only been since they stopped marrying other European royals and began to marry English commoners that we've had problems in the royal yeah. family because mm. They weren't raised in the tradition of knowing about service and duty and that there needs to be some way of ensuring that they're sort of an apprenticeship school. And that's why Prince William was very good in this. Well, actually, Prince William ensured that uh, Kate Middleton, as she then was, had a long time to consider the options. So she had several years, actually. And I thought it was very interesting that, you know, the future head of the Church of England, no one seemed to mind him living in sin, you know, with Kate Middleton, as she got to understand that the duties that she would be expected to fulfil and had a long time to decide whether she wanted it, yes. whereas there was only a short courtship with, um, with uh, Meghan and Harry. Yes. Uh, Richard, you know, I think it was The Guardian, not a well-known monarchist newspaper, but The mm. Guardian mm. did this great article about what happens when these, this reign ends. We're having, mm. having to, uh, you know, on grounds of taste, be a little bit, you know, mm. delicate here. But um, they made the point that the country's sort of in denial about the Queen going. I, th I think uh, you know, the analysis is pretty much correct if, if we were just assuming how things are now. But you know, we're talking about 10 years' time, and mm. there's a lot of kind of black swans in the planet at the moment. And um, it, it's, it's probably logical that we're facing that situation in 10 years' time. Uh, I think when a lot of us think about the monarchy, we, of course, adore the Queen. Mm. Um, but we're not actually thinking about the constitutional position mm. of, say, an unelected head of state. And, and um, there's a whole range of factors coming into this now, uh, I think, in, in the scenario you outlined. That for the first thing is Brexit, you know, mm. that for years, it's taken about 25 years for the country to get its democratic powers back from Brussels. So the logic might go, particularly with younger people, uh, when the Queen is not there, well, what's the point of having an unelected head of state that actually mm. doesn't sign off on legislation, mm. why don't we have an elected head of state like most other countries? Um, you know, we are kind of facing these these areas of anomalies where a couple of weeks ago we we're criticising Iran, but, you know, Iran has an elected head of state uh, and we don't. So, so it's quite difficult to sort of weigh mm. in on the human rights debates globally as we push forward in, 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 in this uh, sort of next decade. I, th I think what hasn't happened with the uh, monarchy is it's not had a political challenge. Uh, the, the European Union had a political challenge. Uh, Nigel Farage was pretty much inspirational for millions of people. Mm -hmm. uh, th then uh, Boris got involved and then a number of other Conservative politicians yeah. that had a lot of leverage. Um, that simply hasn't happened against the royal family at the moment. And I, and I think strolling ahead in 10 years' time, there will be significant political players. Mm -hmm. they, they might be self-motivated. Um, well, so, like politicians? Politicians that are looking for an ele elected presidency and and so mm -hmm. um, I, I think I, I, I subscribe to all, all the views around here I, I think institutionally that the royal family is safe and sound uh, I, I, I think in terms of constitution it's, it's not if I was a betting person I would say in 10 or 15 years time um, given that you've got this sort of parallel universe of, of royal oligarchs that are kind of semi-detached members of the royal family sort of uh, playing around on, on, on a global space uh, that, that we've actually got a little bit of risk around whether the royal family survives as providing us with a head of state. I'm uh, more it may well be that we have a ceremonial 
royal family I, uh, pushing forward 10 or 15 mm. years time that might not be a, a bad I'm more optimistic than you are because for the last 40 years Ipsos Mori and other polling agencies have asked the same question about support for the monarchy and even during the real Annus Horribilis of 1992 and again at the time of Diana support for the monarchy never went really below 70 percent it's always been state it's been the most single stable question ever asked of the great but British I, I public think people are not separating their support for the Queen from the monarchy and I, and I would be interested to see that polling in five years time the, I think actually the, the most the most recent poll did actually support that even though it, it was less of a support amongst millennials to boomers that this it was is actually still issue. very much in mm. favour. Mm. But in 2030, those boomers will have obviously aged and there will be an entire you know, chunk of mm. people that are you know, slightly less in favour. And I think that mm. what we're risking, actually, the lot of the arguments that's be, that are be ironically being made by the people who are in favour of the royal family, they're trying to find ways to justify the royal family in the terms of the terms that usually define the public debate. So talking about, for example, the financial benefits that we get from the from the royal family, that they're an investment. That's not the right way to be talking about no, the royal family. No, and I think no, that actually no. once the boomers are older and that, that the population younger um, demographic are the majority, um, that actually we need to be careful in finding conservative ways to um, justify the existence of the monarchy um, rather than go looking at those arguments that are actually far more on the sort of like Meghan and Harry corporate um, sort of way of justifying and this is this is the single greatest threat you know it, it is a story of the long march for the institutions yet again because nowhere are the young of today getting that story all that they receive is a story about democracy equals one man one vote and that's crude majoritarianism that leads to mob rule particularly in a parliamentary system of government when you have an elected dictator really in the form of a prime minister with a strong majority and, there and you need to have the check of, of the crown there and that's not taught and we're always mm -hmm. basically taught as Madeleine Albright said in America we don't do kings that's become the sort of attitude mm -hmm. over, over in this country and it's the failure of our university systems and our school systems to actually effectively teach people about the long history of the crown the importance of separating those who hold power from those who actually rule uh, and reign uh, that distinction is not made any longer and I think future generations having been denied that education may well go down the Republican path and so if this next decade I say you know in 79 Thatcher got elected 2019 we've had Boris Johnson yeah. he has the next 10 years to make Johnsonianism the the in the 20s what Thatcherism became to the 80s not just for the economy but also for culture and really try to reverse that long march that began in 97 in some way and it depends on how bold he'll be. With, with the monarchy we've got a very interesting question of most people being born with the current queen and mm. accepting mm. that she is who she is and you know, since before you were born because um, she's what 67 years now she's been yes, on the throne yeah. so the, ma the vast majority of people you know of course we're actually going age. to have something which we've never had in history exactly. before a platinum jubilee in a couple of years time <laughs> it's extraordinary well, exactly. two but years god willing yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and um and w what will the reaction be when charles then is the heir mm. and we have a, que a, a question of coronation will it happen? Uh, there, there, there will certainly be people pushing against this happening. And even if it goes ahead, and it probably will, what sort of king will Charles be? Um, that will, I think, mm -hmm. determine a lot of people's attitude towards the monarchy going forward. I, th I think, uh, you know, it's, it's important to realise that, say, 20 years ago, there was no hope of Jeremy Corbyn becoming mm -hmm. leader of the Labour Party. You know, he was massively on the fringe. There was risks of him being deselected. Um, what, what, what that small group were able to do was build a brand and they were able to build what was basically an internal insurgency within the Labour Party. Uh, to some extent the same happened with Brexit. You know, there was an alliance formed, uh, they were viewed as outsiders, mm. it, it attracted the mainstream and it got 17.4 million votes in 2016. What hasn't happened is the same against the monarchy. You know? And f for example, um, people calling themselves Republicans in, in, in Britain will not succeed. We, we do not do republicanism yeah. uh, for very good reasons, you know, to do with Ireland and the rest of it. But over in America, they do republicanism. You know, the, the even bad presidents poll mm -hmm. at 40%. So, mm -hmm. so uh, it's about messaging, brand building. I think if they start calling themselves Democrats, I think if senior politicians that look good on television get behind the democratic movement, I, th I think the royal family as the constitutional head of the UK is at risk. That's what I'm saying. In 10 years' time, mm -hmm. I think there will be a big debate around it. And um, it's not necessary. I can't necessarily see that the head of state will be from the royal family. Um, maybe not in ten years, but I certainly I think there's a grave risk of that not happening. 
The idea of President Blair, I think, will ensure that it is for a long time <laughs> remaining with the crown. <laughs> it, it sounds like a negative kind of reason, but that is a very, very good thing to ponder. But what does I find interesting about this, compared to, you mentioned the Annus Horribilis, this is 1992 when things were going really wrong, is that, you know, if you were a monarchist then, you really were a lonely person, you know. And there, there would have been an argument for saying that it, to go before to the year 2019, that we wouldn't have a monarchy, actually. That, that, mm. that was feasible. But what I find interesting here is that no one is saying that there will not be the institution here in 10 years. No, I think you've, you've put your finger on one of the big issues, which is the fact that under Victoria and Elizabeth, you had young monarchs who captured the new spirit of the new Elizabethan age of 1952. Mm. And just think if King George VI had lived as long as his wife did and the king didn't die until 2002 mm. and Queen Elizabeth II had become queen in 2002, 50 years after she actually did, how would that have changed our attitude mm. towards the sovereign? And I think it's the fact that we're going to have a series, because of medicine and science and people living longer, a series of old monarchs coming to the throne mm. in the foreseeable future, lacking that vitality to, to, to engage and to... to to invigorate a new, a new generation of youth. And that idea, I think, might be, this is going perhaps beyond 2030, I think our monarchy, which is currently the, the last one not to do abdication, I think we might see a situation where monarchs in this country begin to abdicate at the age of mm -hmm. 75 in order to try to capture yeah. some of that, that youth of monarchy. It also yeah. means there's, there's a, a longer period as well where the air is ex sort of exposed to the public without being in the sort of closed and dignified position of being the monarch. So someone like Charles has lived his entire life in, into old age in the public eye and it's very difficult to not trip up and, and not to have some kind of effect on public opinion during that period of time. So when they become the monarch they're still seen as what they were before I think. I, I have to say that if we were sitting here in 2030 discussing all of this I, I would love it dare I say, <laughs> if we were talking about King William and Queen Catherine. <laughs> but I know that I'm probably in a minority. No, that's not mm. going to happen. It's going to be uh, King Charles III, or indeed George Seventh. I think it might be. If he chooses that name. If he chooses that, which sort of be a, a bit absurd now that people mm. know him so well. Maybe 2050. <laughs> Richard, you mentioned about the, the um, effect of Brexit in the dem democratic uh, sense. Mm. Where does this leave, therefore, things such as the House of Lords? I mean, mm. we are hearing, it's now on the agenda, is it not? That, mm. that what happens to the House of Lords? Something that we've lived with now for however long. Uh, ten years' time, will we still be talking about the House of Lords? Yeah, well, I think Blair's reforms were sort of the death knells for the House of Lords in terms of respectability, because it's one thing to accept, accept people who are life peers as being unelected. It's another thing to have former politicians, failed politicians, rejected by the electorate, being made lords, mm. baronesses. In a way that's so much more undemocratic. Well, absolutely. It's that it delegitimises yeah. the institution. Mm. The irony are that the, the most democratic element in the House of Lords are the hereditaries, because mm. they're actually elected to their position, <laughs> unlike everybody else there. Mm. I mean, I did a report with Roger Scruton and Frank Field almost 10 years ago now, looking into reform of the House of Lords, because it, it is now neither fish nor fowl. We have the world's second largest chamber after China, mm. Ours is the only chamber, apart from Iran, that has clerics in it. I mean, it's very hard to justify these things in this mm. day and age. And yet, since 1911, we've been trying to reform this under Lloyd George, and we still haven't achieved it. Mm. And when we did try it on a Tony Blade, it was done on the back of an envelope, which also got rid of the Lord Chancellor's position in a, in a terrible way, meddling around there. I mean, terrible constitutional um, you know, balls up, if I can say, <laughs> under Blair. Um, but I fear that there is no vested interest, really, in the Conservative Party or the Labour Party mm. tackling the House of Lords, because mm. it, it suits them too much to, to keep it as it is. Mm. Well, it's become I'm, not sure, I'm not sure. I'm, I think um, there's a political reality that, that the House of Lords is just completely untenable, for, particularly for a lot of younger people. Um, do they even know what it even does? Well, I, I, think, I think people do. You know, they're acutely aware. We were all aware of what the House of Lords did or didn't do over Brexit. Well, this is the point, isn't it? Uh, this and, is and the big I difference. I think that's a living case study of, of why it should be superseded by something that's elected. Um, mm. the, 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 the challenge of the House of Lords is that we have moved quite rapidly into a wokish world. And an ethical world where everybody's judged by their contribution to ethics and kind of moral outlook. And, and so Britain has always been very good at that. It's punched at a global weight on human rights and ethics and morality. And it won't be able to do that if it has an unelected House of Lords and an unelected kind of upper tier to its constitution mm. as we push forward. We, we mm. simply will not be taken seriously uh, in, in kind of the, the global media uh, circles that we have to operate in. Uh, I, I think there's a manifestly 
unjust um, case, you know, for keeping the House of Lords. You know, the manifestly unjust case for keeping the House of Lords is basically that entrenches a two-party system. Um, you have had political parties that have been, you know, not getting as many votes on the fringes that have raised the House of Lords' validity um, o over the last couple of rounds of elections, and it's. One of these things is easy to fix as well. You know, it, it's 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 not difficult to come up with a workable solution. You know, the Scots have got a parliament, the Welsh have got a parliament. Maybe we have an appetite that, that that's an English elected parliament. Maybe we have one that's it's one elected senator per county. Mm. Um, it's just one of those uh, anachronisms that doesn't seem to work mm. very well. So you don't, so we won't have a House of Lords in ten years. I think we probably uh, we'll, will. We'll, we'll, we'll have, have, have a House of Lords for a long time to come. Yeah. I mean. Firstly, in the next 10 years, the Brexit will be the major issue. Mm. There are simply too many issues on the plate to start tackling something as major as the House of Lords. Actually, but, you know, but the fact that, we're going, that you're going to have to deal with Scotland and, and Wales and Northern Ireland, there is hope for the House of Lords to become a sort of a regional assembly, as you have in America or in Canada, for example, where the upper house deals with the regions. And so as a quasi-federal, giving Scotland and Wales and England uh, an allocation of seats there in order to represent the local issues. And I, I've ad advocated having non-partisan elections there so that they're not tied to party politics, as is done in Nebraska, for example. These are independents who stand up, who were born and raised in an area and stand up for local interests and local people and advance those without fear of any whip telling them how to vote. Mm -hmm. And I think that would keep the independence of the House of Lords, which is, which is very important. And I also like the idea of having a pantheon of the great, to have the, the best businessmen, the best scientists, the best, best sportsmen, the best people from the arts, and industry who can give all of their input and of course the greatest statesmen you know Lady Thatcher and others why shouldn't they be able to have a, a role to play uh, in, in Parliament after they've left office if they have valuable contributions to make maybe call it something else I mean, maybe it doesn't have to be the House of Lords or whatever I don't know I mean I sort of feel I don't know but I think a lot of people felt this that you know mm. I loved the tradition of it all and until Brexit actually mm. and I found that I even got impatient of the rituals because these people were blocking the very thing we'd voted for. Yeah. You know, and I think this I was think, a real, I think, real though, that what, what happened sort of over the course of the, the Brexit shenanigans isn't an, enough of an argument against the Lords to justify doing away with it. I think if we're mm. thinking in constitutional terms, the first thing that you would think there would be an appetite for going for would be the Supreme Court, because mm. that's something that's completely alien Absolutely. to our Constitution. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, well, the House of Lords really is the cronyism we don't like. We don't like all of those people who were social welfare workers and suddenly become peers yeah. for seemingly having done but little. The question is, <coughs> will it be there in 10 years' time? And if so, what format? And I, I just think there's going to be a massive pressure towards democratisation of that. And I actually think it's, it's a big win for any mm. political party. If, if mm. I was Boris in four years' time, I'd put in the manifesto some form of massive reform for the House yeah. of Lords. I think it's a big winner. Mm. Uh, it's one of these big unspoken things that um, when you've got to re-win about 80 or 90 constituencies that you're not used to winning, a lot of them in the north of England, it's, it's, a, it's an easy thing to do, mm. uh, particularly with quite a big majority. I think almost to do it, to, uh, though, to democratise the entire House of Lords, I think we'd almost do away with the point. So mm. It'll then become competitive <laughs> with the House of Commons. Yeah. They'll both claim mandates and they'll both exactly. claim to represent what the people. What will the country be that these chambers are governing? Will it still be a United Kingdom? Do you think Scotland would have gone by 10 I don't think Scotland's going anywhere. You no, don't? No. I mean, uh, it, it depends very much on who, you know, what, what happens politically generally and with the with the Labour Party for example but I think the way that we're going um, the Conservative Party are likely to be in for the next 10 years um, again depending on who, who is in the Labour Party even if Labour were to win if for example uh, Lisa Nandi, um, Nandi? if she's if she's the person who becomes yeah. Labour leader um, then I think you know even if even if Labour were to get in, it would be very unlikely that there would be a, another referendum for Scotland. There's just too good an argument against not allowing them to have another referendum. And even still, I don't think that the polls are even now so close that it's it's unlikely that they would. Uh, do you care about that? I mean, what I, is your feeling? I do care, but I've, I'm of the opinion that. Scottish independence becomes null and void as of 11pm on January the 31st of this year because once we leave the EU, Scotland is out of the EU and Scotland mm -hmm. will not be allowed back into the EU with its economy the way that it is mm -hmm. and the choice for Scotland of leaving the UK and the EU mm -hmm. is virtual suicide I would say. I, so, I, think, um, I totally agree with Wraith. I think, I think if you, again if we're looking at five or ten years time 
uh, Scotland's got a question to ask itself: it is uh, Does it want to remain part of an economy that's the fifth biggest in the world? Exactly. You know, it, it, it's likely to boom after we exit the European Union. Uh, it has, at the moment, an abnormally high amount of nationalist votes. You know, if, if for example, Nigel Farage said some of the things that Nicola Sturgeon said, he'd be pretty, pretty much facing court inquiries. Mm. You know, so I think people have probably had their mm-hmm. feel of Nicola Sturgeon and nationalism. And you probably see it settle quite, quite a lot down, I think, over the next few years. I, I mean, in terms of polling, I wasn't mm-hmm. quite clear. It seems to me that the, the polling replicates what the vote was last time, tends yeah. to. It's just slightly narrower, uh, And the Conservative Party did very well. I think, in, in Scotland, I think actually also, as you were saying, it depends very much on how the EU looks, given the amount of time it would take for another re- referendum p- potentially to happen in Scotland. Or anything could have happened um, within the Eurozone, bearing in mind that they would have to rejoin uh, they would have to join the um, mm. they would have to join the eurozone if they were going to go back into the EU, um, and it's possible that by then we would have had another eurozone mm. crisis. And we would talk about what we were talking about in um, 2010. We were talking about Iran and the eurozone crisis. <laughs> yeah. So I think that it's very possible that this time in 10 years um, we'll be talking potentially about some kind of other crisis within the EU, and that's not necessarily going to oh. be something that Scotland wants to wants to uh, shackle itself just, to. Just to round this off nicely, this part of our discussion, you say a crisis within the EU. Will it actually be a recognisable EU mm-hmm. in 2030? A to- a, a, I mean, a really important topic nobody is talking about, apart from in Germany, is the rise of Germany. Uh, you know, for, for, for about 20 years now in, in Germany, there's been massive debates around sort of reintroducing real politic, uh, about mm-hmm. defining um, what national policy looks like on a foreign and defence level. I, I think now Britain is just about to leave the European Union, that, that Germany pretty much has free economic reign to develop the military and, and, and economic structures mm-hmm. that, 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 that they want. Uh, at the moment, there happens to be great governance in Germany, whether we agree with Merkel or not. The, 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 the governmental um, kind of structures work. Um, but ultimately, I, I think after January 31st, you're going to see, you will see a massive polarisation between British... Uh, national defence and, and, and economic interests, and Germany kind of taking the European block away. And, and come back to the Scotland question is, well, where, where would the Scottish people want to sit there? I think it would become quite vivid to them in a, in a mm-hmm. couple of years' time that they probably should remain part of the United Kingdom. I actually don't think they want to leave the United Kingdom. I think they have certain uh, sentiments, anti-English sentiments or frustrations, but I don't think it's... Uh, the, the independence that they want. I think they just want more control over the United Kingdom. They want more of a say in the destiny of, of Britain as a whole. Um, and they probably have disproportionate say already, but um, mm. uh, but they want more. Oh, oh, yeah, sorry, I, was say, I was actually uh, recently in Scotland and made a point of talking to as many people as possible. Almost everyone I met was SNP. They were all very, you know, mm. pro-independence. Um, you know, I even saw some, someone try to start a fight over it because they were. It was just direct, straight after the um, election result, um, and they were obviously feeling very heated about it. But I think that what comes out of the arguments. I mean, it's it's very easy to sympathise with their nationalism, and in a way, it's a nationalism that the English created. Mm. Um, we helped to contribute to that nationalism through the sort of mm. Victorian romanticism of Scotland and its identity and culture. Um, and even and though Mel Gibson, of course, <laughs> well, Outlander, yeah, um, yeah. and even though it's very easy to sort of sympathise with that nationalism, I think that um, a lot of the people that I spoke to, um, there was a sense that they just felt that they were being ignored unjustly, that they didn't have, you know, that they're a very proud people and they want to be taken seriously. Um, but I don't think that necessarily translates into actual political change. And again, it's interesting, isn't it? Again, it goes down to education. You mentioned William Wallace and this idea that the, Eng- that the, the Scots, just like people in Africa, were colonised by the English and throwing off the, the yoke of the oppressor, when, as everyone knows, it was the Scots who were at the forefront of empire. They were the great empire builders and the great engineers and in, leading the forefront of the, of the Scottish regiments going out in, and colonising. And it's only in recent years that you've seen the S&P try to somehow draw a connection between them and, and this idea that the empire was a solely in- English uh, initiative. Can I go, go back to this point about the EU? Uh, you know, one of the arguments, or not exactly the argument, but basically one of the points that was endlessly made during mm. the referendum was that once we go, we are going to set off this massive movement of people wanting to leave the EU. Is that rubbish? Or well, do you well, see we that happening? We haven't left yet, so 
It's hard to say. We, we need to prove that it's, <laughs> yeah. it's going to work, work right. for us. Right, okay. But I mean, I think, I'm thinking again of a decade hence. You know. I think there yeah. is definitely, um, so again, going back to, you know, another potential Eurozone crisis, in places like the Netherlands or in Germany, there's definitely a sense that as net contributors, if there is further integration, they don't want to be subsidising the rest of the European Union. That's definitely, um, there's definitely a strong Eurosceptic movement, though there's a sort of futility to it that uh, in, in Italy, for example, or in the Netherlands, the feeling that because we're in the Eurozone, we can't pull away from it. But I think if there is another Eurozone crisis, we might start to see, um, if given the choice between full fiscal union, um, and leaving the Eurozone or leaving the EU, that you might actually start to see countries pulling back um, for obvious reasons of national interest. So it's not Im implausible, but I think probably won't necessarily happen in the next 10 years. How are we doing? Yeah, fine. Fine? Because uh, we want to go on for a lot longer. Are we, can we carry on? Yeah. Go, okay, yeah. Uh, what, what's likely, I think, if, if you look at the European Union is, is there's lots of internal cooperation between six or seven mm -hmm. countries, you know, the Benelux countries, uh, in, in terms of police rationalisation, police procurement, counter-terrorism responses. Um, and then there's these, the, the, those kind of operations other countries don't particularly want to, want to get involved with. Um, so maybe some of the Central European countries that have got a more sort of national focus on defence. So, so there, there's that already going on, uh, which, which will trouble Germany and, and France. Mm. Uh, there's also kind of the dynamic at the moment with Viktor Orban and, and, and in mm -hmm. Hungary and you've got President Zeman in uh, the Czech Republic so you, and then Polish president as well, who, who are Eurosceptic? I mean, they, they kind of say publicly that they support the European Union. They drill as much funding out of it as they can, but then they go back home and win elections by saying they're going to sort of tear up mm. various EU agreements. Mm. You, know, so you have all this machinations, which is usual, mm. um, but, but ultimately the test will be the big three. So it's going to be what happens in the French presidential election, what happens in the German federal election, and probably what happens in the Italian elections. Mm. If any of those big countries put forward or a Eurosceptic wins, I think the EU is dust, frankly. Mm. I think it will go back mm -hmm. to being an economic uh, yeah. alliance. I think we'll see uh, a very slim down EU in Exactly. You've also had this really interesting scenario in the Gulf. There's the, the Gulf Cooperation Council of the six states, where Saudi Arabia and one of the Emiratis is pushing forward with, with sort of unification in a load of areas and the rest of them are not interested. So, so you've got this kind of twin dynamic going on and I think coming to 10 years time to answer the question that the European Union will be German-led but it will be frac fractured. Right. I think the key thing also to remember is it's up to us to make Brexit a success because the two key aims of the EU during the post-referendum negotiations was to make it so difficult and so hard for us to leave that it would deter other separatist movements throughout the EU and they succeeded because there was a Frexit movement. There was talk of leaving the EU in Italy and in France and in Greece and elsewhere and they suddenly turned their backs on that idea when they saw, they saw how hard it was for the UK and they thought if the UK of all countries can't leave what hope do we have? Mind you, they didn't have to and they didn't have, but they didn't have and that's just it. We had unfortunately, you know, if Boris had got in 2016 you know, we, we, things would have been yeah. very different yeah. and the EU would be in a much different position I think yeah. and so we have to really make good on having had such a bad the, few the, years. The problem with that is Every single newspaper in the European Union, outside of the UK, does not give us good coverage. So they won't yeah, acknowledge. Terrible. If we're booming, yeah. you know, yeah, the newspapers yeah, in yeah. France and Germany are not going to cover that and not going to yeah. tell their populations. Yeah. So I, 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 we could be the most successful country on the planet, but they're not going to hear about it in Just Europe. Just travelling throughout Europe over the past few years, when you, when you see the press, mm. it's astounding how pro-European it is in terms mm. of Britain. It's like, it's oh, Britain's a mess, Britain's a joke. You know, yeah. Yeah. One thing about Britain is that in 10 years' time, uh, we will have a much bigger population, will we not, Ben? We will. We're set to reach a population of 30 million, um, so 70 million by 2030. 70 million? 70 million. By 2030? By 2030. So, and that is based on, is that a conservative estimate? That's... They always um, are conservative estimates. That, that's, <laughs> uh, I believe, the ONS projections. Right. That would be the Office of National Statistics. Office of National so it's a government... Yeah, it's right. government, and, um, and that, I think, is a very conservative estimate. Uh, it's likely to be 70 million by around 2027, I'd say, right. and even higher by 2030. But we began the decade with David Cameron sort of coming out and promising to reduce immigration to the tens of thousands. Um, it was in the 2010 manifesto for the Conservatives. 
it was in a 2015 manifesto and it was in a 2017 manifesto and they failed every time to meet that target uh, they didn't get close <laughs> it increased every time um, Boris Johnson and the new conservative uh, regime so to speak completely scrapped the tens of thousands figure they've mm. gone for reduce overall mm. whatever that means um, but again I, I, I am very skeptical as to whether that promise will be kept because they haven't said how they're going to do it they don't even seem to intend to, to do it well this is the I was going to ask you this point with the whole immigration issue which I would say is uh, the premier importance for the country is uh, is there the political will is there the political will even there is this, people talk a lot now about disconnects don't they between government and people yeah. I can't think of an issue on which there is a greater disconnect well I, I, I think it's not in the interest for the Conservatives necessarily at the moment to be tough on immigration because there isn't any other party waiting in the wings to hold them to account if they don't. Uh, Labour would, whatever the Conservatives do on immigration, Labour will do worse. Um, and of course when you had the rising threat of UKIP to the Conservatives they started to get very tough and they started to say things that were very sort of promising and, and uh, to try and stave off the threat of UKIP to... to um, yep well to the seats that they they wanted to hold on to effectively um but now we're in a situation where the brexit party is uh, effectively a non-entity um in in terms of uk parliament um in the eu parliament where it was a big threat but we're leaving the eu god willing uh you know at the end of the month and so there doesn't seem to be any real threat to the conservatives on, on although there, there is the other dynamic as well that Boris he even said you know the, these people in the new blue wall have lent me their vote and obviously immigration is something that is of a concern to the Conservatives new demographic um, and if they want to stay in for another five years after their current term then they're going to have to start listening to the concerns of that demographic on things like security immigration extremism and that kind of thing so even if the Labour Party don't really mm. pose them any challenge on, on policy on that front. Um, I think there are sort of sounds that, that they are going to have to take that seriously, otherwise they're going to be held accountable by their new electorate. I, th I think uh, coming out of the European Union almost is one of the natural yeah. solu solutions to, to, to this issue, isn't it? If, if you support lower immigration, you know, the, the, the free movement basically into the UK ends. Uh, on the on the thirty first of of January, I, I think I think because the Conservative Party until June of two thousand and nineteen was was pro EU, um, that they have just simply not been able to solve this political issue. You know, even though they've promised mm -hmm. in manifestos to cut immigration, they have not been able to solve it because they were inherently pro EU. It's a, it's an irre irreconcilable mm -hmm. difference. Um, so so I, I think what what you're seeing is is um, I, I think Boris will try and, and hand, handle the, the manifesto commitment. Uh, I think he's got the operating environment to do it. But you're actually seeing something like 25 years of catch-up because the Labour Party, um, it had policies, but it totally lost control of the UK immigration system. Yeah, it, it was just an utter horrible mess that was handed over to the Conservative Party in 2010. And, and I, I think the Conservative Party did try to grip it. I think the intention was there. Um, but operationally they could not because we still remained in the EU so, so huge amounts mm. of people were, were still coming in uh, but at the same time they were still having to handle the managed immigration mm. from outside the mm. European Union so I just think operationally it became a mess under the Conservative Party um, <coughs> but, but one, of the, um, one of the standout things about immigration of course is it, is it, it follows successful economies you know so, so if we want London and, the, and Great Britain to be successful after Brexit, then we should not expect low immigration applications. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but you see, look, I mean, the, the, you know, it, a country isn't just a balance sheet, is it? I mean, th this is the point. You, you, you know, uh, this is always used uh, to justify immigration. Fair enough, right? But we're talking about unprecedented levels of migration. I mean. Mm. Will, do you think that in 20, 30, 10 years' time, that the level of migration that we have now, around about what, quarter of a million in net? 270,000. 270. Yeah. Will that still be going on then, do you think? Unless we see um, some quite radical changes in a number of different areas, I imagine it will. 
um, because there are areas you need to change policy in order to accommodate a, a reduction in immigration. We've come to rely on immigration in a number of areas. For example, the NHS. We don't train staff, and those we do train leave the country. Uh, there's a big cultural change that needs to be made if we want to reduce the need for immigration. And it's always touted as, oh, well, we need immigration for this, for that. But we only need it because of those policy changes we've made. Um, so I think we need to look at why what, the, the key drives of immigration in this country, look at why they exist and try to reverse them if we want to lower immigration. It's not as simple as just saying, close the door. Um, yeah. And that's why I say Boris Johnson has a chance to make the 20s his version of Thatcher's 80s. Thatcher turned the country around yeah. economically. He can do the same thing if he focuses on skills in the north of England, prime area to actually educate the population into new areas of employment. Because let's, let's not you know, make no bones about this. By 2030, I think, we're going to overtake France as the next most populous country. And eventually, we're going to be larger than Germany by, I think, 2050 or something in like that. In terms of population. That's huge. You know, London will be the only mega city in Europe, apart from yeah. those that are in Asia and Africa and, and the, the Americas. So that's phenomenal. Let's just put it another way. <laughs> At no point in history have so many people in this country been born abroad. It's now around 13%. In the 1990s, it was around 6%, uh, 8%. Before that, it was around 8, uh, 6%. Up until the 50s, it was below 4%. Yeah. Even during the Roman Empire, it was only around 4 to 8%. Under the Vikings, it was around 8%. Under the Normans, <laughs> around 5%, all right? So this, this myth that we're told about Britain was always a melting pot. Yes, there are always people here from around the world. My family came in 1940 with the Polish government, but there was nothing like this. And, you know, all, all countries need time to assimilate. And this is not a, a slight against the, the immigrants. If you go to the Costa del Sol, if you go to Dubai, you find English enclaves where they're reading the, the sun and watching Coronation Street and don't speak a word of the local language. It's a human instinct, if there are enough of you, to not to assimilate. And social cohesion and assimilating a society it only works if you have controlled, managed immigration at a low level. Otherwise, you ask for troubles. That's why America's greatest period of growth was during the period from 1915 to 1975. The period when it managed to get all of its civil rights and social cohesion yeah. was the period when it had its lowest immigration. Yeah. And when immigration heated up, you see the, 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 the troubles of today. The thing is, this narrative you, you mentioned about we're a nation of immigrants and that London was built by immigrants, etc. I mean, uh, this is, is this going to really be challenged? I mean, mm. this is what young people now are growing, growing up with. The, fa the fact is, you're quite right, if it's just factual. Um, in fact, we have waves of migration, but certainly not enough to, to mean that we're actually a nation of migrants or a Mongol nation. Mm. Or We've never had this sort of immigration before in the past. No. This is unprecedented completely. And it, what shows it more than anything is the direction of integration. Previously, historically, when people came over here, they became English or they became British or Scottish or Welsh, wherever they went, and they adapted to the culture and the identity of the, the area where they were and they blended in because it was in their interest to do so. But now what happens is a lot of people move over, they live in small areas together. You see not just ghettoization, but also people, you know, certain areas become culturally uh, similar to the people who've moved there. And then the British indigenous people then starts to integrate with the culture that has gone into that area mm. rather than people adapting just towards British culture. And actually we do but, hear know. people making the argument for two-way integration that we need to sort of find some middle ground between us and the people who have come well, here. Cameron said Even though too. there are you know, an enormous variety of people who have come mm. here. I mean, my family also came from Kenya, having been in India before then. And that's because the pools of immigration we used to have were from the Commonwealth. So they had the English language, mm. they had a British education system, they had the Queen or the King, a portrait there, so they, and the Church of England. So there was an easy transition. Now when you're drawing from parts of the world that have no connection whatsoever to Britain, no history, no ties of any sort, Assimilation is very hard and needs to be managed very carefully, and I see no effort being made at all to instill those those values and, and uh, essences of Britishness in them. And this this new points-based system that we hear yeah. about now, are you sceptical of that? Or well, I think it's a slogan more than it is a policy. Right. Focus groups very well to say Australian style because people think Australia, good immigration system. Okay, well that yeah, I'm happy with that. Uh, but how is it going to be delivered? Uh, mm. Will there be caps? Will there be limits? What sort of people are coming? What's, what are the points going to be determined on? And also, we already have a points-based system. We have done since, I believe, Gordon Brown. Um, and, and that clearly hasn't been working for the past 11 or 12 years. Mm. So really, it, it's not about the slogan. It's not about how it focus groups. It's about how it's implemented. 
and a nature and a rate and the numbers uh, that are consequent of, of that system. I think one of the, the whole hallmarks of immigration is, is, is that it, it's just a complete and utter mess in the way that it's been managed or mismanaged. And uh, I mean, you talk about the points-based system. Yes, mm. it was introduced by Gordon Brown. They didn't really message it very well because none of us really know that it was introduced by the, the Labour Party. Um, but the fact is that that wasn't implemented. You know, it was it was put through as regulations within the civil service. It simply was was not implemented. No, yeah. um, you know, in, in the UK, we've got into the habit since Thatcher of finding um, reasons not to implement things. We've got mm. some very good laws on the statute book, uh, but you, 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 but if. For example, uh, people have so many rights of appeal, you know, in the immigration system. They simply don't have that in other countries. Um, it's either a yes or no answer. Mm. And, and now that sounds harsh, but if, if you legislate and you regulate, then surely then you've got to implement it. And I, and I think a whole host of, uh, of things are going on in the UK, whether it's around um, managing security, whether it's around managing the NHS, is, is that politicians they just get themselves elected and then all they want to do is pass laws. They actually don't implement the laws that mm. have been put in place. You mentioned security in relation to migration there. I mean, obviously, there's, there's impacts. One impacts upon the other, uh, but both ways. Mm. So, um, but, but of course, uh, yes. I mean, if, if you're having immigration uh, coming in from various places around the world, then, then obviously we need to be thinking about some of the challenges that perhaps present you back in those communities. That, that's a a thing that the Metropolitan Police and, and other police services have to, have to deal with. Um, I don't think that factors into political planning mm. whatsoever. I, I, I think uh, there's just simply been no planning for the last, I don't know, what, 60 years around immigration <laughs> mm. in the UK. Uh, I, I, I personally have a lot more faith that, that Boris Johnson will, will, firstly, he will grip it because he's a better mm. and more competent leader than the, yeah. what's been there before him. And secondly, he's got the operating environment. We're out of the European Union, so therefore we've got more leverage to be able to do, do something about this yeah. if, if we want to. I think also Boris, he's he's a doer, so he's not the sort of person who will license civil service kicking the can down the road. Exactly. Dominic Cummings is certainly not going to have any of that. But he's an absolute, you know, uh, metropolitan liberal on these issues, isn't he? I mean, this is, you know, uh, he's a complete, he's you know, he's an amnesty for illegal immigrants, things like this. But he's also a good politician, and so I think he knows exactly what he needs to do in order to please the electorate that voted for him. I, and I think, I mean, it's quite clear that immigration seems to be one of their priorities. It's been a priority for... I'd say about 20 years. I mean, it's, it's been going on this. Um, but I want to ask, uh, next year, to 2021, we, we will have the census, won't we? Uh, yeah. In the last one, I think it was 2011, mm. uh, this was came up with the famous statistic about London, for example, mm -hmm. the first time becoming minority white British. Mm. Um, what do you think we will see in this forthcoming census? Well, uh, I think one of the most interesting things will be uh, religion. Uh, religiosity, mm. the decline of the Anglican Church over the past uh, 10 years. So it's separate from immigration, of course, just the lack of relationship between the people in this country and the institutions of the country which have existed for the past 500 years, mm. so to speak, because um, one of the main reasons why the Anglican Church survived was because it was a tribal religion, as Roger Scruton called it. He said it's a tribal religion and the English don't believe a word of it. Um, and, you know, what point is there in being an Anglican if you're not English, you know, yeah. come over, yeah. why do you maintain the church? So that's one thing I, I'd look out for. Um, another thing would just be the uh, demographic changes, certainly in big cities, London primarily. Apparently the, the Muslim population, for example, mm. is, uh, is, is now over three million or something, mm. isn't it? Yeah, right? so the um, Pew statistics, I think were from 2017, suggested that I think it was um, tw around 27 or 28% of the Muslim population were under the age of 30, I think it was, in, in comparison to 15% in the non-Muslim mm. population. So as we age, going towards 2030, the, the, the demographic that will be in their sort of um, fertile years and therefore have the most population, mm. growth, will grow, <laughs> population growth will be, um, in terms of religious demographics, will be within um, the Muslim community, whereas as Ben was saying, in the uh, Anglican community, particularly uh, the Christian community in Britain, that seems to be shrinking. Mm -hmm. Do you think, I mean, do you think, when you look at the sort of threats we face in terms of terrorism, what have you, in the past 10 years, 
Um, we're hearing a lot now, for example, about the rise of right-wing extremism. Mm. Is that something you recognise, Richard, as being a real threat? I mean, it I, I, th I, th I think un undoubtedly it is crystallised as, as more, more of a threat than it was, say, t ten or fifteen years ago, and, and there's, there's a lot of reasons for that. But um, I, I think I think the threat from terrorism is higher than it was mm. twenty years ago. You, you know, um, the, the first Islamist case that was prosecuted was prosecuted in the Midlands in 2000. So we've had 20 years of Islamist terrorism in, in the UK and, and that, that's a constant feature, you know, I mean we're not, talk, talk, not talking about sort of one-off plots, it's been uh, a, pretty much a conveyor belt that the police services have, have been having to, to deal with and, and it's, all, it's kind of changed the nature of policing in, mm. in many ways. Um, but I, I, there's certainly something going on where people uh, politically are angrier, you know, whether it's fueled mm. by social media uh, whether it's fueled because we have an unelected House of Lords, you know, whatever, we don't have the escape valves, I don't know. But um, the, there's certainly on the far left, I would say, the, the, the risk from terrorism is, yeah. is far higher. Uh, yeah. And it's been interesting that the police have kind of admitted that they're beginning to look at that area. Yeah, I have admitted this. Uh, it's been in newspapers over the last couple of weeks. Uh, certainly, the, the, we know the threat from far-right um, activists has, 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 gone, has gone through the roof compared to where it was sort of 15, 20 years ago. Um, when you look at this type of terrorism, far, you know, there, there, there are different targets. You know, if you want to be macabre about it, the, the, the far left might typically go for a bank or a stock exchange or something like that. Uh, the far right might typically go for a mosque or a synagogue. Mm. Uh, with, with Islamist terrorism, it's, mm -hmm. it's more nihilist. You know, it might be a, a stadium or a shopping centre. All, all these things have been through the courts. Uh, a lot of them have been prevented. But certainly, um, yeah, since, since we got a, a peace treaty in Ireland, um, the, the, the nature of terrorism has, has changed massively. And, and it's, un, it is, it's no point denying that some of this has been down to Im immigration. You know, immigration has mm. generated some wonderful things in this country, but it's also ge generated some challenges. I think, though, that surely there's no question that still the vast bulk of terrorism is Islamist, isn't it? Mm. I mean, you know, I mean, it seems to me that we're sort of like talking about these other things. Somehow there's this sort of sense of trying to equate, you know, I'm not saying the threat isn't there, mm -hmm. but isn't surely. I think it's what was being referred to as Rowleyism, where because you, in order to excuse talking about the Islamist yes. extremism, which has become in some senses politically incorrect, particularly with the use of the Islamophobia, <laughs> accusation of Islamophobia, when people who are trying to talk about Islamist terrorism rather than Islam particularly. Yeah. Um, they will try to big up the threat of the far right. I'm not saying that it isn't a threat, but to big up the threat of the far right in order to balance it so that they're allowed to talk mm. about the Islamist extremism. Mm. That's something that has been you know, spoken about quite widely. I think one of the things that we haven't um, spoken about that probably in 2030 we will be is the possibility of environmental terrorism because that is something that has existed in the past mm -hmm. um, and we've seen you know like Antifa in, in Portland for example in the US that Antifa are un, un, unlike the way that they behave over here are actually quite um, violent protests um, in the US that we might, may start seeing something like that from environmental movements and as you were saying about the targets you know you might see them targeting things like farms mm. um uh, abattoirs and, what about and things cyber like that politicians uh, yeah. and uh, i mean it, you know some of the most violent terrorism in the united states has been environmentalists right the, mm. the unabomber mm -hmm. most famously uh where there are a number of fatalities um for, i mean over here my concerns are around um, the government not regulating technology because I think technology will be harnessed with um, terrorism over the next 10 years. I, I, I think tragically you will see something with a drone mm. um, because the government just simply not legislating around private ownership of, of drones. I don't know why they're not doing it. Um, there, there'll be something, you know, we're already seeing sort of um, terrorist attacks like live on various sort of Twitter feeds and social media feeds. Um, so, so the harnessing of technology and, 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 and terrorism will sort of continue and, until we really stamp down on that. And um, I think at some point, you know, one of the major governments, whether it's France or America, will put some punitive legislation in. Mm. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be wiped out because they'll be called censors and they'll be called, you know, this is a police state, but it will be the right thing to do. Do you think, therefore, that like in 2030, we will be walking around the cities and having less of a sense of safety. I mean, in London now, for example, you know, 
there are always those barriers up, you know, those anti-terrorist barriers mm. that, yeah. that have the feel of being temporary, but then suddenly they sort of become permanent pretty, you know, <laughs> they're there all the time. They, they look temporary, but they're there all the time. Mm -hmm. And are, are we going to have more of that, do you think? Will it be a certainly a less safe place? Well, actually, one of the things that's very interesting is that terrorism is successful when you see that you have to go through airport security to go to anything. I think uh, in China, they have to go through airport security to get on the tube <laughs> in parts of China at, at the moment. And if we see that in the United Kingdom, then, well, it's, terrorism has been effective, is all it says. We're not preventing it. We can only sort of, we're preventing it in terms of the actual causes at the root, which is preventing it from happening, you know, in public spaces. But the, the, it's still there. It's still under the surface. Um, what, one thing that you mentioned earlier, Emma, when you were saying we were talking about, you know, uh, is, uh, is Islamic terrorism, right-wing terrorism, you said that people do this so that they can talk about mm -hmm. it. In other words, w the implication of that is uh, that we've got to be very careful about what we say. Uh, this mm -hmm. is something that comes over time and time again on this programme and, uh, and in our general, mm -hmm. uh, you know, discussion about these things. Do you think that we will be even less free to say what we think in 10 years' time? Or, do, or mm. you, because the reason I, I, I should put it in context, there are, there are more of these kind of a societies starting up and campaigns. We've yeah. got to now, we've got to really challenge woke. We've got to really challenge threats to free speech. And you think, well, this is great, encouraging, but will they take mm -hmm. off? I think actually that links quite closely to what we were saying before about what will it, what will our personal safety look like, you yes. know, what, as, how, how safe will we feel as a, as a nation and as a people, because you can only feel so safe if you're not actually able to talk about things as you find them. So um, if your speech is compelled and you're not allowed to say the things that you think are true, or if you're not allowed to actually challenge discourse that might be going in the wrong direction because it's politically incorrect for you to do that because um, as we saw recently in the news a university has um, put a sort of almost like a student police force in place um, to chilling. target microaggressions yeah. um, and if we start to feel as a, as a culture that you know we're limited in this way and that we, we're not allowed to speak freely and that we're not allowed to assert things that we think are true just because there are certain ideologies that have become part of the fabric of society that prevent us from talking about those things, then I think actually that has a negative impact in a number of ways. And one of the ways that that would have a negative impact is actually on our ability to mm. accurately assess the sorts of threats that mm. are taking place mm. because we would be very, very much stuck on tram lines that we're not allowed to leave. Otherwise, you know, you'll be but there was a great example publicly assassinated. This that you actually worked on, sense. wasn't there? Which was mm -hmm. the, the, the new definition of Islamophobia. Yeah which basically, you know, the police said, actually, mm -hmm. this new definition will hamper our efforts, right, in, in fight against terrorism. And then they took it back, didn't they? They, they mm -hmm. got worried and they kind of retracted yeah. what they had said. But the mere fact that a definition like that can be adopted by our institutions, which mm -hmm. many of them have, is rather worrying, isn't it? And actually, we're seeing it now with the uh, Labour leadership. Um, the candidates are, are gradually ad adopting the, the definition as a, mm. a list of things that have been proposed by um, the Muslim Council of Britain and um, uh, Muslim Labour Group. Um, and I think it is, it's, it's very dangerous if these sorts of things get taken into our institutions because then they become sort of like the holy cow that you can't, mm. you can't the sacred cow that you can't question. Um, and that becomes very dangerous for free speech, but also for compelled speech. We've seen this with the uh, trans debate and pronouns in, in, in Canada um, and around the world that, you know, it, 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 it almost it's like it crushes the soul in a sense mm. that um, mm. if, if a, an individual or a people feel that they can't um, discuss things openly and can't assert the things that they think are true. But I'm a, lot um, more, I'm a lot more optimistic on this front, you know. I remember, more optimistic. I'm, I'm much more optimistic, and I think a new dawn has just broken recently with, with the mm. rise of Jordan Peterson mm. and the failure of all of these films, the, the female Ghostbusters crashed and burnt, mm. the female Doctor Who has gone through the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, people are beginning to realise that Twitter is not the British public, you know. I remember G.K. Mm. Chesterton, for we are the people of England who have not spoken yet. And politicians and business are now realising that Twitter mm -hmm. was wrong on Brexit, wrong on Trump. Twitter forecasts Corbyn getting many more seats than he did. Twitter is always wrong. Celebrities do not represent the people. They can't even sway yeah. the votes of the people. I think people are finally realising, in the, in, in, in the holders of power are realising that the people are rejecting all of this. And I think, especially with transgenderism in, in, in female sports, common sense is starting to come back. 
And my hope is that, especially, again, this is Boris Johnson's time to actually make an impression on the country and, you know, put his stamp on history. And it's up to him to actually lead the charge on this and bring back some common sense reality in terms of no platforming and all the rest of it. So uh, I, I have some optimism. I actually completely agree with you. I, I mean, whilst I think that those things are still a risk, I think that they're probably something that I at least hope, maybe I'm being too optimistic and will be proven wrong, but I think that they're something that we're leaving in the last decade. Even if, you know, the um, recent qu question time discussion about um, Meghan Markle um, and, mm, and mm, race mm, and, and mm. you know, if you look at the sorts of things if, just on the Twitter sphere, um, there definitely seems to be a, a pushback from normal people who are, you know, just sick of being told what to think and what to say. Well, even, even the panel on Question Time on, on this week at Thursday when we were recording had two former guests on, one from this show, one from So What You're Saying Is, and a Conservative MP. Yeah, I thought three, three right-wingers on, on, on the panel, you know? So. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the thing is, uh, my, my fear is that I would love to agree with, with you, but I feel a bit like with political correctness. Everyone laughed and joked about it and everyone abided by it. And they still do. I'm less optimistic, I have to say. I, th I think um, if what we were talking about was operating in a vacuum, fine, but we're operating in a, a, a technical world that can kind of pretty much listen in and yeah. report and record everything mm. that we do. We, we simply no longer have privacy. Mm. Um, since, since the world's first satellites in the early 1960s are often a mirror on the world, the moment you can connect them to a radio and then you can connect them to a phone, we've essentially lost privacy. Um, what, what that means is if I'm walking down the road and, and I go into a pub and I make a joke because I see something that's really funny, mm -hmm. because sense of humour is based on the element of surprise, mm -hmm. if I make a joke, that, that somebody somewhere can be listening in on my phone uh, through, through, through the, mm. the microphone uh, or even watching me, you know, if I've got the WhatsApp mm -hmm. thing running. So, um, we, you know, they're just so many organisations, whether they're private or government organisations that can listen into stuff. I'm absolutely not a conspiracy theorist, but I think that if you are in any way involved with this technology, that you, you simply do mm. not have privacy and therefore mm. and even if you're not. it's low pickings. Pe people yeah. that are critical yeah. of the left, people that are intellectually into critical analysis, it's very low pickings mm -hmm. to, 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 to deal with them at the moment. And, and I, I'm a, I think it's going to get a lot worse. I think you've seen political correctness, which wasn't angry. You see, you're now seeing wokeism, which is polarising and mm. very, very angry. I can't really see a rollback. Interestingly, I think if we, if we reject a lot of this technology, so do you remember when you used to sort of drive through left-wing towns and it was a non-nuclear zone? You sort of drive through Basildon and the sign, we are a non-nuclear zone. <laughs> so it might be that we, we, we drive through Barrow and Furness and it says we are a non-internet zone or a non-Wi-Fi zone. And then you'll get your privacy back and you'll be able to speak freely. That's mm -hmm. what I'm saying. Actually, there have been some people who have suggested, and I think this is a, a horrendous policy <laughs> recommendation, trying to find some way of regulating the internet. I mean, whether or not it's actually possible to regulate the internet is another thing, but the fact that there are people who are suggesting it, mm. that's you know very insidious, mm -hmm. I think. So even though I do agree that I think the tides are turning in terms of public opinion, it still remains the case that, um, that the particular uh, elements of society that... Um, are influential in the media or in um, in you know tech and um, the policy sphere. There is definitely a sort of liberal, not in the literal sense, bias there, um, and that that's something that you know we may continue to see the sort of the the um, rollout of of that sort of general trajectory of woke mm. um, across aspects of society but I think that the majority of people are starting to sort of turn against it at least that's my feeling do you have just just to finish off uh, do you have any particular thing you think might be the case or might not however trivial or however important mm. in 10 years time I mean for example we've been talking about question time we've just mentioned question time you know that probably won't be here in 10 years' time, for example. And we'll be looking back thinking, oh, do you remember Question Time? <laughs> you know, or even do you remember the BBC? Is there anything <laughs> that you would like to, to, to throw in? What do you think of it? I've just given this to you like now, but um, we'll still have cinema, I think. I'll put my, put my foot on that. We'll still uh, have cinema. I think we'll have a revived cinema as yes. well. I've seen a lot of cinemas now opening. Yes. And they've completely changed the business model because they've realised people don't want to go to a big corporate style like View or actually I shouldn't name any but, yeah. <laughs> but they don't want to go to a big corporate one with like you know overpriced popcorn and stuff they want a local cinema old fashioned you know the traditional style because you can watch films in that way at home 
Well, you also, I think people might recoil from watching things on a mobile phone, mm. like Martin Scorsese mm -hmm. said recently. Yeah. Yeah. And I can tell you that because of global warming, the soil in Champagne is becoming very acidic, <laughs> and Tattinger have now begun to plant vines in England. <laughs> so on New Year's Eve 2029, I think there'll be a lot more English Champagne drunk than ever before. <laughs> All right, Champagne <laughs> and the movies and what? The founder, the head of the Tattinger House, also said that Champagne was an English invention. <laughs> and completely pissed off all the French by doing so. <laughs> <laughs> my, my, my prediction is by 2030 that British comedy as we know it is dead. Yes. Mm. Pretty much on life support, isn't it now anyway? Yeah. Pretty much. Emma, come on. Mine is only a small one. I think the BBC licence fee will be dead. All I right. think it will okay. be. Mm. If the BBC is not gone, certainly the licence fee will be. Okay. Mine was so boring in comparison to everyone else's. <laughs> hey, look, uh, let's make, a, let's make a, a, a pact, shall we? If we're still going strong, we'll all meet here again in like uh, 10 years' time. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, thank you very much to Emma, to Benjamin, to Richard and to Rafe. Uh, that's the end of Counterculture this week and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you very much for watching. Thank you. Cut.